Coming up on today's show, we've heard a lot about ER bed closures and what they mean for Albertans. Today, we'll chat with an emergency room physician. This smoke is unbelievable and it refuses to budge. How long will it last and how can we be getting smoke from both the east and the west at the same time? And also today, where are we in terms of this pandemic? It looks like Canada is doing really well, but there's issues elsewhere. Do we need to change the way we're thinking about things in our country? Well, several Alberta emergency departments have closed some beds, some departments altogether, uh, briefly, uh, due to staffing shortages already this summer. And most of these ERs are in rural areas, but not all of them. In fact, the emergency room at the Royal Alex in Edmonton, uh, uh, seeing at least half a dozen beds closed, at least, uh, and it's among the busiest ERs in Canada. So to find out exactly what's going on in these emergency departments, we asked a doctor from the Royal Alex to join us for some on-the-ward insight. And joining us now, we have Dr. Shazma Mathani. Uh, Doc, thanks for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Shay. So coming off what I estimate was probably another busy weekend, how did it go? What was the situation this weekend at the Royal Alec? Um, Well, thankfully, after that large bed closure um, late last week, uh, it was, there were no more beds closed than the, than the kind of baseline six beds that we're okay. facing uh, for the for the entire uh, summer. But at one point last week, you tweeted that uh, almost half of the beds in the emergency department had to be closed. What happened there? You know, I wasn't actually working that night. I just learned it from many of my colleagues. Um, and really, it, it comes down to staff shortages. So uh, there was a critical shortage of staff, and it was not safe to keep all the beds in the department open. So we have to you know, do our best to maintain safe um, staffing and nursing ratios, and that just simply wasn't possible for a period of time on Thursday night. So obviously the numbers fluctuate day to day. How long did that situation last, and, you know, has it been bouncing between 6 and, you know, 20 kind of a thing, or has it been pretty consistently the 6 that we know about? For the most part, it's been consistently between 6 and 9, I would say. So 6 at baseline and sometimes for periods of time throughout the day. Um, There might be a few extra beds closed, uh, that period of 18 was for only, for four hours, um, and then an addition like so it was 12 for four hours and 18 for an additional four hours, so an eight-hour period where there were 12 to 18 that were closed. Uh, so still, I mean, like we have to remember that this is a very em- busy emergency department, and um, it it really affected the flow of patients. I, I'm really proud of my colleagues who were working that night that. I'm sure work their butts off to, mm. to continue to, to see people and to, to provide patient care, but it's in a situation where they don't have all the resources they need, and it certainly places undue stress on the people that are there working. I can only imagine. Just give us some insight. When you're working in the ER like that, uh, as you said, it's incre- we all know it's incredibly busy to begin with, but when you don't have the staff to um, you know have all the beds operating, you need to start closing beds. What kind of decisions do you have to make? How does it change the way you provide care in that emergency department at that time? You know, it really puts a lot of of stress and pressure on just trying to move patients through the department as quickly as we can. So being, um, you know, sometimes patients that we um, might sit on for a bit longer, uh, we feel the pressure to discharge them. Of course, like nobody would ever be discharged unsafely, right? right. But it really, we really just feel that pressure to, well, we need to turn this bed around. We need to bring people in from the waiting room. Um, you know, the, the charge nurses are always uh, facing the the pressure of kind of having a sense of how the general, the entire department is flowing and, and moving people through. And then, of course, when we're in a situation, um, which we are a lot more lately with lots of accidental opioid overdoses coming in, our trauma rooms or our resuscitation rooms are 
uh, very, very busy. And, and if those run out of space, that can become particularly problematic. Thankfully, that's not happened so far, but certainly a worry on our minds all the time. And there's a trickle-down effect, if we can call it that, right? When the ER is backed up like that, we know it's harder for ambulances to discharge their patients into your care, things like that. Like, the whole system is affected. It's not like it's just isolated in the emergency room. Absolutely, right? So if we have less beds in the emergency department or we're, we're more full than we uh, normally are, ambulances can't offload their patients and get back out onto the streets. Um, further to that, uh, if we're, you know, if it's gridlocked upstairs, which we're certainly seeing a bit more of lately, then the patients stay in the emergency department longer and then again trickles down to EMS or other patients walking in through the door. So, um, you know, less space to see patients in certainly has a, a broad effect on the healthcare system. And I imagine it means longer waits for patients. I've always wondered, do doctors know what's going on in that, emer- in that waiting room? Like, are you guys aware of wait times? Is that an added pressure? It's got to be on your mind. Do you guys know? Do you get updates? Like, okay, we're now got some guys been sitting here for 12 hours. Is that something you're aware of? Or, or are you just Absolutely. managing what you can manage? No, we, it's both. So we, um, you know, there's a wait waiting room screen on our, on our, like on our, EMR that we use, okay. um, and then uh, and then the people in the department screen, and many of us are always just flipping back and forth between the waiting room just to get a general sense of how many are there, what's the longest people have been waiting, and it's certainly um, it, it's what we're we have a general awareness of it th- throughout our shift, and you know knowing that there are thirty people in the waiting room, some of whom have been waiting several hours. Um, we never like to see that, but it's definitely happening more and more. You are seeing it with the with the bed closures. Obviously, you would have to, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, less space means means more time people are waiting, for sure. sure. Of course, makes perfect sense. Now, mm-hmm. the question here is, uh, um, you've been in the ER for, what, six, seven years now, right? Yeah, about seven years. So, I mean, we always hear that there are fluctuations in summer. People take vacations. Things always get a little tighter in summer. Is that true, first of all? Have we seen this in years past? I have not. Um, there might be the... So summer is our busiest time for, for a few reasons, but um, really just with everybody being out and about and lots more people getting injured, that sort of thing. So summer is always our busiest time. Um, in general, there, you know, in the previous six summers that I've worked, there might be an odd day where there are two or three beds closed and not even an entire day, like a few hours in a shift. Um, this has never happened before to this magnitude, like with these consistent prolonged bed closures for a period of several weeks. That's that's not happened while I've been working at the Royal Alex. And is it because a lot of people are on vacation? I mean, is it attributable to that? Or, I mean, we know the pandemic was a nightmare for you. So are people taking more time off this summer? This is not due to vacation. Um, so, you know, in previous years, uh, vacations have happened and we've been able to cover uh, those those vacancies, or not vacancies, but those brief vacations because we're adequately buffered and staffed, right? So, um People, like nurses, are never allowed to take more vacation than they're allowed to. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is not from vacation. This is from um, an exodus of of nurses from our emergency department because they're stressed, they're burnt out, um, certainly feeling um, underappreciated, disrespected. uh, And really just after 16 months of this pandemic and talking to a lot of my colleagues that have left, they're just done. Like it's hard to to work in this environment for, for so long um, and then continue to be expected to uh, fill the gaps, come in for overtime when you've already worked a 60-hour week. Like, how can anybody sustain that that level of work? Yeah. Um, last one. The health minister was asked about this and said, hey, 
This was expected. We saw this coming. We knew this was going to happen, which to me is kind of like, well, what did you do to prepare for it? Because we've all worked in businesses where we know there's going to be summer relief needed. You bring on casuals, whatever the case may be. You don't just say, oh, well, that's the way it is. Were, were there any plans put in place around this? Were, did you guys have a planning structure from AHS? Did they talk to you about saying we're going to have shortages and this is what we need to do? So, I mean, I can tell you that AHS is doing the best they can in the circumstances that they've been given, right? So um, there was... I wouldn't say that this is expected because I would say it's unprecedented that we have this many bed closures and this short of staff. Um, There's been aggressive hiring and aggressive um, recruitment that's been trying to take place. But uh, the the point is that people still aren't coming to work uh, in in the emergency departments, right? So that should tell you um, that even with recruitment and with job openings that um, if those spots aren't filled, it tells you the level of burnout among my colleagues for sure, right? That that even with um, AHS doing the best they can to fill those spots, they, there are still bed closures that have to take place. Okay. Well, uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us, and best of luck as the summer goes forward. Thank you, Doc. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Dr. Shazma Mathani an emergency room physician at the Royal Alec in the city of Edmonton, which is, I think, probably the biggest emergency room uh, to be hit by these bed closures. We all know it. We're all living through it. Uh, And it's not the first summer, right? It seems to be a regular summer thing for us now, dealing with wildfire smoke. And uh, it's really bad right now. I I don't understand. Maybe they need to revamp the scale that we use to talk about air quality in the province uh, because it goes up 10. And we were 10 plus yesterday in Edmonton and expecting to be 10 plus again today. So if the scale can't even register how bad it is, maybe it's time for a new scale. But let's get some details on what's going on, why we have all of this smoke, uh, and when, if we can expect it to leave anytime soon, and how tough it is to, to forecast and to predict what's going on with the smoke and when it may be leaving. So we're going to chat now with Senior Climatologist with Environment Canada, David Phillips. David, thank you for joining us. Always fun to chat. Well, thank you, Shay, for having me aboard. Yes, I'd like to speak to you when there's a, a blue sky and white puffy clouds, but you never call during those kind of situations. <laughs> no, we don't. We can handle those. We're good on our own there. It's, it's like, I was, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, just yeah. a 24-degree day without a cloud in the sky would be oh. uh, just heaven-sent at this yeah. point in time. Uh, of course, we went through the heat wave, and now we're dealing with the smoke. First of all, yeah. this smoke, where is it coming from? Because I'm hearing it's coming from both the east and the west at the same time. It is. It is, Shay. So right. I mean, we're seeing fires in um, in Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia, um, and in Oregon and even California. Um, and, you know, it's almost like the tailpipe of North America is Alberta because you're getting from easterly winds, you're getting all of the Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario smoke at low levels. It's coming in at low. It's what you're, you're, you're tasting, you're smelling, you're seeing, and you're, you're feeling. That's the kind of smoke that you're you're from the uh, from, from the eastern parts of uh, uh, of, uh, of the prairies and and also in Ontario. I mean, we're seeing fires in those areas. Like, my gosh, I, let me just uh, give you an example. Uh, uh, for example, British Columbia, where you're getting smoke from there, but it's at higher levels because the winds tend to be from the west or southwest. So you're getting some of that British Columbia smoke coming in at higher levels, but at the lower levels, you're getting it more from from eastern 
western areas. British Columbia, for example, has you know three times the number of air, the area burned now compared to say in the last average over the last ten years. Uh, there's similarly in Manitoba, four times the number of the area burned now compared to what was say in the last ten years. So this is very early. Um, a lot of fires, but also the area burned and the and the weather situation Shea has set up. You have this high pressure area over, uh, say, northern Saskatchewan, northern Manitoba, and the air moves in a clockwise direction. So it's taking all that smoke and blowing it not west to east as it normally goes, but from east to west. And so it's coming in on these easterly winds into uh, Alberta. I mean, there's there's only four areas of Alberta that's not under these uh, special air quality statements: Grand River, uh, Peace River, high level in Fort Chippewa. Every every place else is is uh, in a fumigating kind of situation. And at the higher levels, as I mentioned, you're getting these BC fires, Oregon, California, smoke from those fires. So it's it's really and yet in Alberta, I mean, you're seeing in terms of the the area burn compared to the 10-year average, it's like 15 percent. So this is not homegrown smoke. This is actually imported from areas uh, uh, to the east and the west and the south of you. It's it's uh, there's no escaping it. How much does it affect the weather? Like if we didn't have all of the smoke in Alberta right now, what kind of days would we be having? Because, I mean, there's no rain, very little to speak of, the odd shower overnight, but that's about it. Shay, that's such a good question, and I was just, it takes a lot for me to, to shake my head about the weather, but I was talking to a colleague of mine in, in Edmonton, and he explained to me, for example, yesterday, the models uh, that give us our five-day, seven-day forecast, they came up with, um, they said Edmonton was going to be 27, 28 degrees uh, yesterday. Well, downtown, it didn't get up to 14 degrees. And you think, wow, how could we miss it by 14 degrees? Well, very simply, the models don't necessarily catch the the effect that the smoke at the entire column, at the surface and upper levels, I mean, that total column, as far as you can see, oh, you get brilliant sunrises and sunsets, but my gosh, you can you can cut the air with a, with a knife, it's so thick. And so that has actually prevented the sun from coming in, baking the ground, and kept temperatures 14 degrees colder than they would have been. I mean, and, and so it just shows you that there is an effect on locally on the um, on the weather in terms of the temperature, um, and and you get a little bit of rain maybe. It's not enough to scrub the air no. to to cleanse the air and uh, and get back to kind of blue skies and white puffy clouds. And then um, and then the winds are so light, and they're from those directions that, as I mentioned, from the east to northeast, uh, blowing into the province at lower levels and uh, and then at uh, upper levels they're they're bringing in the smoke from uh, from the west what you really need is a nice northwesterly flow of air to clean out the crud and get that air column disappearing but that's something you often don't see in the summertime it's 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 there in the in the spring fall and winter but but not always there in the summer so and it's really kind of a long-term kind of thing I think Shay oh, because no. you know I mean the Temperatures could fall, and you could get some rain. But what carries on is the are the forest 
wildfires because the situation has been so hot. I mean, you've had in, uh, I, I think in Edmonton, I counted the number of days above uh, 30 degrees this year is more than you've had in the entire last five years, you say. So it's been hot, it's been dry, and of course the forest fires are just sitting there waiting for that spark from a, an all-terrain vehicle or a, or a converter, a catalytic converter, or dry lightning, and, uh, and it burns up. And, and the forest fires really now what we're seeing are usually much later. I mean, the season in British Columbia usually doesn't get going until, until August, and here we are. We had fires going on there in June and into July, and, and so it's been a, a long, hoary season uh, when you add to all of the extremes, and my gosh, the grasshoppers are, are loving it, and, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of people, I mean, it's just been, it's, it's been so extreme for the early yes, part of has. our summer. It's tough to get a handle on it. So, um, you know, we're seeing models saying at least till midweek, but, uh, you know, I, I'm viewing them with skepticism because, as you're saying, we're going to need a pretty dramatic change in the weather to try and flush yeah. this smoke out. So wh- how hard is it to predict that, and what do you watch for to say, okay, this may provide some relief? Well, you're right. I mean, the longer you look, the farther you look out, the more uncertain you're going to be. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty good with uh, the next day. And, and, and temperature-wise, you know, we do it well for seven days. We get our, Except when you get a local situation like you had yesterday where we would really um, uh, look like we, we really didn't know what we were talking about. But, again, that was local kind of conditions that were, were coming and going. But we look even after the – I mean, the chances of rain coming up or the next day, you know, a 30 percent or maybe. I don't carry an umbrella for 30 percent. And then even after Wednesday, we see temperatures, again, seasonable. We're not back to that dome and, and uh, torrid kind of 30 degrees, but there's still um, lots of sunshine and uh, temperatures that are at season or slightly above. I mean, the dog days of summer don't really come until the end of July and the beginning of August, and that's typically, Shay, where you get your warmest moment right. of the summer. That's still to, to come. Our models are showing, there are one-month models for August is we're showing uh, warmer than normal. What you see is what you're going to get. And you, you hinted at it. You know, sometimes you get locked in. I always, there's a thing in weather called persistence. What you see is what you're going to get. Okay. It's hard to change the pattern around to something dramatically different. And, uh, and, and that's why um, we, it's easier just to forecast what you see you're going to continue to get. And that's what the models are seeing, warmer than normal all over Canada from coast to coast to coast. Now, precipitation, there's been some improvement in that in terms of the fact that we were showing maybe uh, middle of last week, we were showing dry, dry, dry from coast to coast. Well, now it's backed off. The models today are saying, well, you know, a few dry spots in on the prairies, but generally it looks like it's uh, going to be normal precipitation. But, you know, Shay, I wonder in parts, especially the eastern prairies, that it's, it's, it's just too late. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mm-hmm. farmers are encouraged to, to harvest what they've got for feed, because uh, they just don't see anything growing from now, and they're talking about next year. I mean, internal optimists saying, hey, well, maybe if we get the rains now, then that'll help to fill the dugouts and sloughs and potholes and get ready for next year. But my gosh, it's been uh, bleak, uh, uh, clearly, and, uh, and just no break at all. I mean, it's just absolutely uh, a head shaker for sure. You know, and I was watching some American news yesterday, yep. uh, and they're they're dealing with this smoke, like this smoke that it, we're dealing with from the wildfires, primarily in BC and parts of you know Manitoba and Saskatchewan. It is covering almost the entire continent at this point, oh. isn't it? 
see it from space and um, and and clearly. And and you know, you mentioned something right at the top that I thought was was right on. Is that it's almost as if we never used to see this before. No, I don't. And and this. you know, we I remember um, like last year, for example, um, we had very few fires in Canada, but boy, do we have ever the smoke yeah. because they were coming up from California, Oregon, and Washington. So it's almost it's not what's happening in your backyard, especially with with smoke. It, it it's you really got to depend on what what's happening elsewhere in terms of uh, uh, that smoke can be imported and and it was just from very unhealthy point of view and the thing about smoke we often talk about Shay is the fact that the the sort of the the evacuations the the risk of fires of burning communities and things like this there is a longer term effect and that is health mm-hmm. I mean that smoke breathing that into your lungs that fine particulate matter we just don't know what the long term implications are that later down down downstream i mean uh and that's that's what's what's scary about the uh about the the wildfire smoke yeah and uh unfortunately you cannot offer us any certainty around relief hey we're just gonna have to wait I this out no i mean we know the days are getting shorter <laughs> <laughs> Shay, i mean that is just something we can predict that is because of that astronomy i mean that's where you can you can hang your hat on things like that but um and you know uh july august is usually about a degree cooler than july so uh but you know sometimes july i remember one year Shay. i mean i it's, I, I should remember the year i don't where september was the warmest month of the year well, september year. can be great it, yeah it told you more about what the rest of the summer was before <laughs> September, but still, there was a break. You did see those muscle shirts and tank tops breaking out there on Jasper Avenue that September, but uh, hey, uh, days are also shorter, so there's not as much time to enjoy it. All right. Uh, I was hoping for better news, but I wasn't no, expecting. I, I'm a guy that with uh, the glass half full, but I, I am scratching all over the place, and I can't find it, Shay. Okay, excellent. Thanks so much, David. I always appreciate your time. Okay, great. Bye-bye now. That's David Phillips, a senior climatologist with Environment Canada. How are you feeling about um, COVID? It looks like in Canada we're in a much different position than many other places around the world. And we're starting to see the impact that um, the virus is having in other parts of the world. Are we going to remain immune? And given where we are, um, should we start to rethink the way we respond to this and the way we handle this in terms of testing and testing centers and case counts and all the rest of this stuff? It seems like maybe we're in a transitional period here in Canada. Let's hope it holds. I, I think it will. Uh, just based on our vaccination numbers, but uh, I'm not the expert. The guy who is is Jason Kindertruck, uh, a Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba. Doc, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Shay. You know, we've chatted about this pandemic right from the very beginning. Given where we are now, how are you feeling about things? It looks like things are doing quite well in our country, or am I just being naive? No, no, I don't, you're not being naive at all. Listen, I, I think that there's certainly reason for a lot of optimism right now, right? Vaccination rates are high. We're certainly seeing, you know, downward trends in uh, in transmission all around the country. But at the same time, we're watching what's going on in, in other areas of the yeah. world. And I think what, what we're specifically seeing is this chasm and this division between people that have been vaccinated and people that are unvaccinated. And really that Delta is hitting the unvaccinated very hard. And that's, I think, you know, I try and levy some of that optimism with, you know, still saying, listen, and we've got a, a you know millions of people across the country that have yet to get any vaccine, and we really need to be focusing our, our efforts there. 
Yeah, and it's and that's really sort of tough to, to to wrap your head around because we're doing so well in Canada and case counts continue to fall and we look like we're in a really, really good position. But but as you said, I mean, just kids under 12 alone, they can't be vaccinated. Um, and we see that the Delta variant is raging in a lot of different places. So that really has to sort of color the way we make decisions going forward. It's, it's, a, it's a global community, right? It is. And, and I think that's what makes it difficult, right? Because we, you know, we, we've always talked about this idea that the pandemic is probably going to end or at least be very close to ending here before it ends anywhere else in the world. And, and we've talked about it and everybody, I think, has you know, agreed on that fact. But now we're so close to the finish line. It is very easy to kind of you know, think past that point that, oh, wait a second, cases in, in resource limited settings are, are going through the roof and same with hospitalizations. And so it, it is very, it's very difficult for us to, to kind of keep those two pieces of information together and really try and make any sort of cognitive sense with it. Yeah. When we take a look at the way we're doing things in our country right now, I mean, if you go back to the beginning of this, we all breathlessly watched every day for the update. How many cases? How many cases? How many? Um, are, do we need to do that anymore? I mean, we know that people are going to get infected with the virus once they've been vaccinated, but... You know, part of me says, well, who cares? As long as they're not ending up in hospital. We've always been told it's, it's, it's our public health system. We need to protect that. Do we need to change the way we're monitoring what this virus is doing in Canada? Well, I think from the public health standpoint, no. I think certainly with, with Delta and, uh, you know, we, and the risk for other variants of concern to emerge, we, we have to keep doing what we're doing. I think from a, a personal you know, mental health standpoint, you know, we, we have to kind of continue to provide ourselves some context to, to what the numbers mean. Cases are, are going to increase, but you're right. It's, it's this question about the healthcare system and where those cases are, are predominantly conglomerated. Are they in areas that have high vaccination rates or are they heading into areas where we have low vaccine coverage and and that is likely going to indicate that we're going to see uh, some concerns from a healthcare standpoint in, in the weeks following. So we, we really need to to always kind of you know keep that context in mind. It's not it's not easy to do. Uh, I, I try to message. Certainly, there are colleagues of mine that do a much better job than, than I do with uh, with trying to get that information out. Um, but it, but it's tough, and I think that's what we have to kind of keep in mind. You know, and as we're chatting, I just got a, a text from Gord from Calgary saying, "Look at the U.S. Two weeks after July Fourth, they were spiking again. Let's see what it looks like two weeks." after Stampede. Um, I don't think we're going to see uh, the kind of fires that we're seeing in the United States. What should we be watching? What do we need to keep an eye on? Because like you said, case counts are going to go up, and I think that's the understanding. But if the outcomes aren't severe, what should we be focused on? Yeah, a couple things, right? So so one is certainly the test positivity rate. So, you know, our case is increasing, but is it that just because we're doing extra, extra testing and people are going in to get tested? The other thing that I think we really need to watch is the proportion of Delta that's showing up in the community. So are, are we seeing increased, uh, you know, transmission of that particular variant of concern, given the, the concerns we have with it from a public health standpoint? And where are we seeing, uh, you know, those transmission chains occurring? Because it, it is really becoming a pandemic that's being done dominated by Delta. And for, you know, from my standpoint, when you look at the U.S., that's the concern that they're having right now. So we, we need to be ultra-focused on where that's going. In terms of, you know, if we do get notified that, you know, if we have symptoms, we need to go get tested. If we're close contact, we need to go get tested. Um, at some point, I mean, this is a massive infrastructure system that we've set up yeah. around this. Do we need to continue with that, or should we be more surgical in how we go about our testing? Uh, the reality is, is that with me, the mass testing sites are probably going to decrease over time just because we, we don't need the resources uh, if we don't have the cases 
to justify them. But we have to have the testing capacity. And I think that's the thing for us to realize is that when the, the you know, test positivity is going to go down, transmission is going to go down, but it's still going to be rolling through to our community. So if you have symptoms, definitely still get tested. We, we can't get under this presumption that it is something else aside from COVID just because we may have been vaccinated right. or because we don't think it's in our community. In terms of vaccination, uh, you know, we had the super clinic set up and all these sorts of things. I, we're, we're getting to a point now, I know here in Alberta, I was checking the numbers last night, and there's almost a million doses of vaccine in Alberta that haven't been administered yet. And I think there's over 7 million new doses coming into the country this week. Are we getting to the point now where we need to say, okay, we've probably got pretty close to where we need to be in terms of vaccines, and, and you know, we need to have some on hand, but do we need to start looking, what are we going to do with all these vaccines here? It's a a great question, right? So certainly in our communities, I think there's still the question, are there people that just have not been able to have vaccine uh, accessible to them? So because of work circumstances or demographics, whatever, have they just not been able to get vaccinated? And if they haven't, we've got to have doses to get them vaccinated and and figure out a mechanism to do it. The other question, though, is, is great is, listen, if we have excess doses, We've got to consider there are areas of the world that have not received vaccine doses yet and, and are not slated to do so over the, uh, the, the coming months. So we, we need to be thinking strategically about the fact that this is a global pandemic and we need a, a global cause to try and get this uh, you know, transmission curbed. I think the one thing that we're all concerned about, we all know we need to keep an eye on, is variants and variants of concern. And I noticed there's a change in the way that we're tracking those in Canada. I heard about a new variant that emerged. It's the H1. I can't remember what the name is, uh, just over the course of the weekend. Um, how much of a focus should that be for us? It's, it's got to be a big focus, right? So, listen, the, the thing that we're realizing about the variants of concern is that they certainly can change the face of the pandemic very quickly. And all this is based on, on early recognition. And the unfortunate reality is trying to do that early recognition requires that you have infrastructure and you've got people to be able to do the, the sequencing to, to do this. Um, so I think for us, you know, it certainly opened up a, a little bit of a bottleneck that we had in Canada. We've got to keep focusing on it. We can't predict where variants of concern necessarily are going to emerge, and we can't assume that that Canada is going to be immune because we haven't seen one that's emerged here. So we, we've got to remain focused on, on that, unfortunately, for the long term. So what's the change in the reporting system that they're talking about doing and keeping us better informed about this? Because that's the front. It's good. I, I literally just saw the headline uh, right beforehand as well. So I, I have yet to see what uh, what exactly they're they're changing as well. So I'm I'm <laughs> stay, stay tuned for uh, for any info <laughs> from me on that. Bottom line, Doc, I, I'm feeling pretty good about where Canada sits right now, and I know that there are things that could derail this in some way. But it, are are you feeling the same way that we're we're pretty much through the worst of this? And if we can, you know, um, start to think about what our post pandemic future looks like in Canada. Yeah, I'm optimistic, right? I think there is that part of me that looks and says, listen, we've got, you know, 20% or thereabouts people that have not received vaccine yet. Can we pick up that percentage yet and, and get at least some of those people dosed? Um, but I think at the same time, yeah, you know what, we're, we're starting to get to that end line where things are going to change pretty quickly, not all overnight, but, but we're going to start to see things happening very, very quickly. Excellent. Well, there's some optimism. We can take that. We, we always need that. Thanks so much, Doc. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Take care. That's Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, who is the Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.